from Kirkco Media. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. Whether you're a health curious, sophisticated individual, or you're within the medical or health communities, today's show will air topics that go to the heart of the healthcare environment. Welcome to Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. We're joined today, of course, with our host of Medicine We're Still Practicing, the triple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and critical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. It's good to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to have you here. We have a highly experienced guest with us today. During his last few decades, Dr. Howard J. Fullman, board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology, has held positions of medical director and chief of staff, partner and board member at Kaiser Permanente, and by the way, he supervised about 4,300 staff and about 500 doctors. Doctor, how you doing? I'm well, Bill. Nice to see you. Nice to have you join us. When Howard was 12 in New York, he watched as his grandmother was treated for cancer, and he knew then that he wanted to become a doctor. Dr. Fullman earned his medical degree at Northwestern, and he completed his gastroenterology fellowship at none other than UCLA. By the way, their football team is the Bruins. But then he became clinical professor of medicine at USC. Their team is the Trojans. He also served as an associate clinical professor of medicine at UCLA Bruins. So before we get down to business, let's start with this. Howard, who's your team, Bruins or Trojans? Well, Bill, you know, we're such a divided and polarized country, and I think we need to start bringing people together right here in Los Angeles by making sure that we can be equally proud of both the Bruins and the Trojans. But I do have to say, I'm personally still a Trojan fan because my two boys matriculated there. Ah, yeah. well, I'm a Trojan LA's. fan as well because I trained at USC. So welcome to the show, and we're proud to have you. Thank you, Steve. Two great teams with two great traditions, and we're lucky to have such fantastic sports here in Los Angeles. So, Steve, let me ask you first. How are we supposed to juggle the cost of medicine, insurance company limitations, and hospital economics if we're going to try to enhance patient outcomes? That is the big dilemma, is that we have tremendous standards in terms of healthcare and our expectations that we are going to provide the, the best and the greatest and the newest healthcare available possible to our patients. And yet we have this notion that this is going to come from vaporware, that somehow it will be provided to us. And yet we are really at a crossroads of realizing that our Medicare system is straining relative to the dollars that are available. And the entire system sort of feels as if it's about ready to collapse. My understanding is that Medicare, for example, and let's just pick on them because there's nobody in the room that's an executive at Medicare. And they will, at this point, basically set a rate for all of these different procedures. If you enter a hospital and this is your problem, this is how much we pay the hospital, whether someone is in the hospital for one night or 17, doesn't matter. So, first of all, I'd like to ask you, where does that kind of philosophy come from? Uh, who's allowing that to happen and how do we change that? Well, there's a long history of very high charges coming out of the hospital. It started in the 1950s, which is when the blues really got established. And as more technology was, a, was being developed and the blues were willing to pay for it, 
the the hospitals got wise to it and figured out how to. So they abused the system, and then they're paying the price now. That's well, right. That's huge right. abuse, right, in the system. Doctors would bring patients in for a week because it looks like you need to have a rest, and so they would bring a patient in for a rest, and they would hire all of they would bring all their friends to come in and do a consultation. We'll get the pulmonologist to check your lungs and the cardiologist to check your heart, and it was almost a cottage industry. Right. So the doctor that owns an MRI facility, and if you have a common cold, you should probably get an MRI. But it didn't really work like that in those days. But it basically, they were u- utilizing the hospital and the hospital services uh, inappropriately, at least by today's standards. We would look at that and say, that's really a waste. The, something that could have easily been done as, on, an outpatient, on an outpatient basis was being done on an inpatient basis. And perhaps we were calling, they were calling consultants in that really were not necessary at that time. But in many ways, they were trying to benefit everybody's uh, bottom line. And, and, and quite honestly, that was going on quite a bit. In, in healthcare in the 60s and 70s. And eventually, it broke the bank, and people finally woke up. So it's up. a pendulum issue. We swung too far the other way. That is Certainly, that's true. So, Howard, how do you fix that now? Well, first of all, I don't think we should put the patients in the middle. I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. I think we need to have more transparency of pricing. I mean, both the insurance company and the patient should know, if I'm coming in for this condition or this operation, this is what it's going to cost. And hospitals and healthcare systems should be able to compete on quality and cost in a very transparent way. We don't really have that. So that's one way to do it. And I think, uh, you know, we passed a patient bill of rights a number of years ago, but even before the Affordable Care Act. And I don't think we're really uh, implement. We've really implemented it well. And I think patients are entitled to know exactly what they're getting and what they're getting for their money. And uh, I think we're moving in a better direction when we pass the Affordable Care Act. So I hope that we can put that back on the rails. There's also a complex in, injustice that's being done to patients in that transparency is wonderful, but you can tell the patient that, let's be transparent, we're going to charge you $7 for every Tylenol you use in the hospital. In the hospital's defense, I'm not necessarily being a hospital advocate, but if somebody comes through the emergency room that has no insurance, but they are critically ill, the hospital can't turn that person away. That, that hospital must admit that patient, take care of that patient, ostensibly for free. Well, how does the hospital maintain its profitability? Well, by basically, in some ways, uh, making it up by the paying customers. So the paying customer is actually paying, if you will, the customer is paying more for their health care at that institution because that institution is having to provide pro bono care for patients that come in. But is there really that much pro bono care? I mean, yes. it, 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 you're, when you're talking $7 an aspirin, you're talking about 1,000% of its cost. There is tremendous amount of pro bono of people coming in with who are uninsured or minimally insured who, or who are staying well beyond the diagnostic-related group uh, reimbursement, people who have been given reimbursement, as you were alluding to, for a five-day length of stay who have multiple complications that keep them in the hospital for 30 days. Transparency is important, and yet most of the patient consumers don't realize that um, we can be transparent about the cost, but they don't really understand the intricacies of how that cost is arrived. But the reality is, if an insurance company is saying that whatever ails me is worth three days in the hospital, and the doctor decides that I need to stay there longer for some reason. The hospital's really not getting reimbursed for that? That's correct. The physician will still get reimbursed. 
So the, the physician's motivation and the hospital motivations well, good to know. are not aligned at all. And we're always constantly trying to, to realign that on the private sector. So let's talk about malalignment for a second. Wouldn't it be worthwhile for a hospital to steer people toward the da Vinci robot if it was more likely that your stay in the hospital was going to uh, be shorter with that procedure. Well, maybe. I, I, that's, that would be one criterion I think that would be good to use. So, uh, you know, at this point, people are really excited by the whole whiz-bang thing. You know, I had something done by laser, by this, by that. And these, exactly. you know, these different words are not even necessarily understood by the person who had the procedure, but it sounds like it must be better because it says robot or it says laser. So I'm all for the use of technology to get better and better outcomes, and I think we should sometimes spend more money and oftentimes even a lot more money if the outcomes are really better. Immunotherapy, which can be 100000 plus per year for certain conditions, still is probably very much worth doing for certain cancers and certain people. Which brings us back to what you said regarding advertising of immunotherapy in the general media. Having patients then decide that they want this therapy, push their physicians to provide this therapy uh, would be is very inappropriate why well because it may not be appropriate both economically or or even medically for a patient but when they see it on tv they hear that this is the latest and the greatest in their mind this is what should be used and that puts pressure on a physician to prescribe something that maybe he or she would not as a physician you don't want pressure from the patient that may have heard something that may be appropriate, may be not appropriate, may be your specialty, may not be your specialty. You actually don't want to be challenged by your patient? No, I want to be challenged by, by information that's reasonable and rational, not, medi- not information that is perpetrated by an insurance company with a, an economic motivation. And I agree. I want Steve to be challenged by the patient every time, and I also want to be challenged by the patient. I think most doctors do. Almost all of us like it when a patient requests a second opinion. We're not defensive about it. And we think that's, you know, if someone seeks that, it's a, it's a great idea. But, you know, certain things require a certain degree of, of sophistication to really understand the value. And it, I don't think you'd see very many advertisements for a certain approach to a legal problem with technical information because people are not trained as lawyers. So, I, you know, there's a certain benefit to having the public ex- be extremely well-informed, and I'm all for that. But I'm not sure television advertising for biologics is part of that. Well, I, I don't uh, think so. You know, may, maybe I not. I agree with you, but just, 100%. Just, just for a second, um, let's, let's stick to the immunotherapy conversation for a minute. Um, is that currently more expensive on its face than a more standard care with, with chemotherapy and such? Yes. Well, first of all, it's usually chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. So it's not in place of. And immunotherapy is very expensive. And again, as I said, I'm totally for it. I when mean, it's appropriate. Certain, right? it's appropriate. <laughs> You're never going to deny it when it's appropriate. Certain conditions where it could be life-saving okay, so or very let, let's, substantial let's talk life about But you're not going to use it for, for immunotherapy's sake alone. Or because it, or because the the patient heard about it on TV, so therefore it must be the thing that should be used. But it sounds like you're you're resenting the idea that a patient would question. No, I heard about this. It sounds cool. I want. I'm resenting that. the insurance company for putting it on TV as if this is therapy that everybody should be asking for when they're not really educating the patient as to when it's appropriate and when it's not. They're, they're putting it on the patient to put pressure on the physician to prescribe this medication because it's supposed to be good because it's on TV, not because 
hey, what do you think, doctor? Is this right for me? They're making it sound like this medication is the panacea for what you have. Oh, by the way, uh, if you listen very carefully to the fine points of all the possible complications that they rattle off, you know, it, 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 almost tongue-in-cheek. We've cured the cancer and killed the patient. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they minimize those risks, and they, they list them in about 15 seconds, a thousand different c- complications that can take place, but they highlight, uh, you know, all the benefits. So the patient is getting a, a slanted view of not only what the medication can and can't do, but also when it's appropriate. I wouldn't uh, necessarily restrict the advertising of these of these products on TV, as long as the rules about exactly how they were discussed in the commercial were fairer. Exactly so right. So it's not just the side effects that are there in the small print said very quickly by the announcer at the very end of the commercial. Immunotherapy is a great uh, example because if you have a certain tumor, based upon the details of that tumor how aggressive it looks histologically and other biology of the tumor and a score that comes out of that, it might be a great therapy. But if you don't have those criteria, it might be actually deleterious for you. Guys, it sounds like you don't want to be inconvenienced by your patient asking too many super Not true. Questions. Not, Not true at all. I don't want them coming in with a misconception. You're coming from this tenant that the drug industry, that the manufacturer of this medication, strictly has altruistic notions for its medication. It's basically manipulating patients to be salespeople for the drug industry that we're resistant to. We are happy to talk to our patients, to educate our patients, to set them on the right path. That's what we do as physicians. But we don't want the we don't want insurance companies to mislead patients. And we think that from from advertising, there's a lot of misrepresentation that that's taking place. You know what? I'm I'm going to ask us for just a minute. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Doctor, doctor. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Doctor, doctor. Okay, Howard, so let's dive into your specialty for just a minute and talk about the uh, the change in outcomes over the years. And uh, I'm going to have to touch on some of Steve's hot button uh, advertising and the impression of the public of what they should do about, in your case, in the gastroenterology case. Um, all of a sudden it's in vogue that people are looking at probiotics and prebiotics and a bunch of things that they don't particularly understand. Can you tell me how you feel about that? Well, um, the devil's in the details like a lot of things. There's a lot of research going on related to probiotics. They are probably not a panacea. However, there is no doubt that what's called the microbiome which is the distribution of different bacteria that we all have in our GI tracts, has a major impact not just on gastrointestinal health, but on immunologic health and lots of other aspects of health in the body as a whole. We will probably have a better understanding of that over time, and having those bacteria be in balance 
will probably over time have a better impact on digestive health and all these other conditions. I can tell you when it comes to gastroenterologic conditions themselves, there are some conditions where taking probiotics can be very beneficial. But do you generally recommend probiotics for the general population? I don't. No, but I do think there are certain many conditions where they can be beneficial. So if you're if you're taking an antibiotic, for example, this is one of those cases where you should need to look at a probiotic. Could, could be, uh, and certainly there's data that suggests that if you take a probiotic after completing or toward the end of, of a course of antibiotics, that you might reduce some of the side effects from an antibiotic, including even some very bad infections that can ensue. Uh, that's one of the examples where there might be some of the best data, in fact. From your perspective, Dr. Fullman, is there any evidence to support daily use of prebiotics, probiotics, as being touted uh, on all these commercials? No, there's not. And uh, again, I, you know, we talked a lot about the advertising, and I'm sure we can have even more gainful conversation about the details of it, but I think the public is being misled, and that in general, based upon the data that exists now, universal use of prebiotics or probiotics is not justifiable. How are we doing with our management of healthcare here in the U.S. versus some of the other countries that you've looked at? Well, again, I think our country is a little bit like Tale of Two Cities. Uh, there are some things we're doing incredibly well. Cancer care may be the best in the world. We made some progress even in prevention. You know, we've cut down tobacco use in the United States overall compared to a lot of the rest of the world substantially. That's a big deal. Uh, we had been improving our vaccination rates compared to some of the rest of the world. That was a big accomplishment, falling off a little bit there. Uh, in parts of the country, we are doing well uh, in terms of, or I should say better, at diet, exercise, etc., compared to how we used to be, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. One of the things, obviously, for me as a pulmonologist, we lament the fact that tobacco is still pervasive, uh, you know, throughout the world, but especially in this country where we're supposedly better educated, more enlightened. How is it that we have very strict helmet laws? The government seems to be able to dictate that when you get on a motorcycle, you must protect your head, but that it's okay to be selling tobacco, uh, which which kills millions of people every year. Tobacco is horrible in terms of all the things you could do to your body. I don't know if there's anything worse. Right. Uh, but, I, you know, when I go around the world, I still think there's so much less smoking of tobacco in this country compared to Asia and Europe. So we've done something right. And I don't think outlawing it would eliminate the use of it. So right. you just well, have a tremendous black market. But we've taught the kids market. how to vape something that tastes like strawberry. Well, not sure that's necessarily the right way to go either, but um, someone will over time figure out what the, if there's a better substitute. I think we're making headway because the American public is being better educated than they were before, and we've cut down on some of the teenage and early adulthood tobacco use that used to happen in the country. So they think that's improving. But And I, and I was talking about you know, areas where we're doing well. Again, medical education, research in the United States, we're the best in the world, bar none. There's absolutely no doubt about that. There's different systems around the world. Um, you know, none of them have, have cured all the ails. None of them have gotten the best healthcare outcomes at low cost and complete patient satisfaction. That has not happened. But I will tell you a couple of things that I've noticed when I've compared the United States to the rest of the world and where I think we're falling short and where we could make huge progress if we would just take some lessons from the rest of the world. We're the only industrialized country that does not have universal care. 
bar none. Nobody else, everybody else, every single citizen has access to medical care. We don't. We have had 50, 60 plus million Americans without medical care. We made some progress on it for a period of time after the Affordable Care Act. Here in California, we went down in two years from 22% uninsured to 11% uninsured in two years after the Affordable Care Act. And why is that important? Well, when people have coverage, they tend to seek out care earlier in an illness. They seek out prevention more. They have access to healthcare information. They have better coordination of care. All of these things serve them well as opposed to I wait till I'm getting really, really sick and I go into the emergency room when I'm at this point very, very sick and something could have, that could have been taken care of with simple remedy now becomes something very complicated. So that's one difference. Now, when I say universal care, people automatically assume that that means government-sponsored health care. Well, that's not necessarily how the rest of the world achieves universal care. That is how the United Kingdom achieves it. And to a large extent, that's how Canada achieves it, although a different system than the British system. But the German system looks to a degree very much like ours. It's a private system. It's a competitive system. But it is a massively competitive system. So there are 200 plus insurance companies, they call them illness funds, and they compete on everything, on customer satisfaction, clinical outcomes. And if you're a patient or employer, you get to choose from large numbers of possibilities, and they're in, in rapid competition with one another. And so is there something that's preventing that here? Well, that's really where the Affordable Care Act was going, was based upon that. We only were lim- The Affordable Care Act did not mandate, however, that everybody should have some form of coverage. It just made it more accessible through exchanges and through subsidies, but it didn't mandate it. The German system mandates that everybody be covered, whether they're employed or not. Most of the coverage is employer-based, much more like our system, but everybody has access to it. And there is a public option for the folks who don't have a job or have a job that doesn't offer it. Is that public option uh, massive deductibles? No, modest. No, modest. The, The coverage is actually quite good. So how is that seemingly more affordable in other countries than it is in the United States? I'm a big believer in the marketplace. And when you have true competition, whether it's pharmaceutical companies competing or hospitals competing or medical groups competing or insurance companies competing, that's very motivating to provide a product that that people see as value. But are we not more competitive here in the United States with so many providers of care? You figure competition is, is more fierce in the United States than in some other country that has universal care. Seems to be less competition in those countries. I think our insurance companies are less competitive with one another than the German system, for an example. There's much, been, been a lot more consolidation of insurance companies in the United States than right. they have in the German system. And I think that's right there one difference. And then again, there is no absolute guaranteed public option for the other 50, 60 million in the United States. So that, again, is, creates an imperfect market. Right. The public so those option are, is the county hospital. County right? hospital. So, Which is not much of so a system. So when, right. when you hear a democratic debate, can't help but get a little political here, and someone suggests that we eliminate private insurance and just have one system. Well, first of all, I don't think, by and large, most Americans want that. I think, you know, you look at, let's say, union workers, through decades, they have given up wages in lieu of benefits, and they have fantastic health care that they've fought for, 
And I doubt that very many, many of them want to give that up after years of, tr- of trying to earn those benefits. And many, many other Americans are actually overall pretty happy with the coverage they have. It's kind of like um, what people say about, let's say, their, about Congress. You know, they may not like Congress, but they like their congressmen. People may not like the healthcare system, but they are okay with their health insurance. They're okay with their doctor, with what they have. They're not, they're kind of loath to give it up because they're used to it, generally like it. So I don't think from that it's so tenable to take massive numbers of people with insurance that by and large they are pretty happy with and then maybe have a crapshoot that a publicly financed 100% public system is going to be better for people. I don't think they're so willing to accept that. Right. And you're talking about a a country that's used to having uh, what you want whenever you want it and patients who enjoy the ability to choose their practitioner, to choose their hospital. Right. um, You're not going to get them to give that up anytime soon. But there are many who say that if you have any kind of universal health care, you're going to end up having rationing. We have rationing now. It's just going to take a different form. The reality, though, is that we're, like we were alluding to before, there's always going to be a multi-tier system. There's always going to be those people who probably don't choose, even now, Kaiser, because they choose to, to be able to pick their own physician that they want in the community. They don't want somebody to mandate that you are now in a closed system. Uh, there's going to be the elite that's going to be able to fly around the country. Bill, you and I, we have a good friend that's going to find the, the, the person on the board of every hospital who is going to find that person to handle each, each organ system at, at a particular university uh, because they can afford to do so. And then there's going to be those people in this country that are, are more indigent, less privileged, that are going to be able to afford only probably a lower level of care, unfortunately. So, but what you're talking about is health care for culture. all, best health care for some. Well, unfortunately, in this country, we have a culture. And that culture is this, this expectation. If you can get a better system, get a better level of care, you're going to go for it. And it's not going to be considered that I'm going to do what's best for the country and let's all come down to a common denominator of health care because I'll lower my health care to raise the bottom. Everybody's going to still search for the best health care that they can. I think it's, it's a different philosophy of our people. I think it's just how we see our lives in America. In wrapping up, let me just say that I think the most poignant thing that I heard today is something that deserves repeating as we bring the show to a close. Doctor, the most interesting thing that you said here is that we need to structure more competition in health insurance and actually figure out a way to have way more companies offering us health insurance like you talked about in Germany. And maybe that is the first step toward a solution. As we bring this to a close, what grade would you give us now in America for our outcomes? I'll be generous. I'd say overall, they give us a B. And Canada? I would give Canada a B on outcomes and a C plus on, or, or a C on service. Sounds like Germany's going to get a higher grade. I like the German system a lot. It's one of my favorites. Dr. Howard J. Fullman, we thank you for joining us. And of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you for hosting this. Uh, and next time, uh, if you'd come back and tell us a little about Atlantic Street Capital and some of the cool investments in the medical industry that you're working on and how that's going to change the outcomes for the American people. Happy to, Bill. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Come back and visit 
medicine we're still practicing, we'll see you again next time. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.